0: show? No worries on point and on the podcast, we talked to one mother whose son finally goes in for surgery to sick kids hospital to lengthen his leg after delays and further complications by COVID. He is just shy of that window closing for that. Ford government says it's going further to protect the greenbelt, and yet why are they building a major highway through this sensitive area? And a senior liberal calls out his own party for its stance on China and the fact that it can't seem to quit the chinese republic let's get talking
1: what's your point you just don't ever get to call Am I getting through to you matter the point Do you understand there is a point that point where enough is enough here's
2: alex pearson on global news radio listening today's variant count is the tip of an iceberg. By the time the confirmed case counts are big enough to shock us, it will be too late to do anything. So I have written to Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, asking that the province delay assessing Toronto's return to the COVID-19 response framework until at least March the 9th.
0: You ever get the feeling that Toronto's become the football Lucy keeps pulling away from Charlie? Here we are, you know, on the verge of opening up, and there's Toronto's top doc insisting that Toronto and Peel shut down for weeks longer. And there was Dr. Deville using her slowest and scariest voice yet, warning about the variants taking over, and frankly... To say she has never been so worried, uh, you know, a little over the top. I mean, it verges on irresponsible because it's fear-mongering. I mean, Davila is warning that there are 56 confirmed cases involving these variants in Toronto and that there are more than five times that number being investigated. And I'd love to know how she knows. Like, how do you know? Toronto lost control of tracing months ago, which should actually scare her. It, It should actually scare you that her office hasn't even figured out how to log and trace these cases. And yet, you know, she has the power to put Toronto into a further lockdown until at least March 9th, at least. And yet none of the decision-making can or will be backed up by actual data. And if it has been, I'd love to see it. You know, and if she was so worried about the variants, why wasn't she using her slow, scary voice weeks ago, you know, The time for fear-mongering, if you ask me, was when flights carrying these variants were pouring into Pearson Airport unchecked, and never did Davila or any of these experts or the elected officials make a peep or a demand that the federal government take action, of course, when we had time. You know, as always, it comes after the fact, when it is way too late. And what's key to what Davila said today is the phrase, at least which means Lucy's just going to keep moving that ball over and over and over again, because this is never not going to be a worst case scenario for Dr. Davila or any of these experts who fail to do their jobs and just don't seem to care about those paying the ultimate price. You know, the businesses that are literally being crushed by their failure to lead. And we never hear any concern for these people. Or secondary pandemic, like the economic ruin. And that is likely because they don't lose their paychecks. You know, those are guaranteed. And I'd love to know, how is it safe to have millions of kids back in school if Dr. DeVille is saying she is the most worried she's ever been since the start of the pandemic? I mean, sorry, but that sc- that circle just does not square. So we will talk about the double talk because uh, it ain't adding up. We lost a giant in the media world with news that Rush Limbaugh lost his battle with cancer at the age of 70. It is with profound sadness I must
2: share with you directly that our beloved Rush, my wonderful husband, passed away this morning
0: due to complications from lung cancer. As so many of you know, losing a loved one is terribly difficult, even more so when that loved one is larger than life. So that was Rush Limbaugh's wife, Catherine, who took over his program today, which he literally fronted until last week. And um, I mean, there was no bigger or more influential voice in the conservative movement than Rush Limbaugh, certainly in the United States. And he was by far the biggest voice in talk radio. I mean, he started the, the he started it. He, he took over the AM radio, creating a demand where there was none before him. And I can't say I was really a big fan of his base. Like I just I wasn't. It wasn't my thing. I mean, I respected him because he paved the way for folks like me to have a voice you know, do talk radio. He had a massive following, though, um, that very few others. So he opened the doors for guys like the Howard Stearns, the Don Imus, all those guys. And he was absolutely unapologetic in his beliefs, which in the age of cancel culture is a bloody miracle, you know. And he drove the left nuts because he would just play with them. Listen to this as, as a cat does to a trap mouse.
1: I don't think there's a more informed or educated audience in all of media than you. Who is the most ill-informed? I'd say the NPR crowd, probably the most ill-informed. The New York Times is probably the most ill-informed media audience um, out there. I, mean, I really do. I mean, look at look at four years of abject lies on Trump Russia collusion, and you know something? Conservative Treehouse today. And they have a piece today that's that's right on the money. Everybody involved in it knew. They knew it was a hoax. They knew it was fraudulent. They knew that they were participating in an illegal attempt to overturn the election results of 2016.
0: He was a, he was a little bit like the honey badger. He don't care about nobody. He just didn't. And uh, he was uh, kind of one of a kind. So, you know, while those on the left are going to dance on his grave, and boy, are they dancing. I mean, honestly. I mean, I'm just sorry to see him go because there are just so few voices like his. You know, he's just unapologetic in, in a time when everyone's apologizing for everything. And so I think his, his death is going to profoundly change talk radio because, you know, very few, very few can command. I mean, you've got guys like uh, Joe Rogan probably could pull it off. Um, but there are very few on the conservative side who can command an audience, even on the left, that literally carried stations right across the country for years. And so, yeah, he was controversial. But I do like that he called BS where he saw it. And uh, today, we just don't have enough of that. All we get is the, uh, the BS. Speaking of, Prime Minister is, of course, being called out uh, even by his own team members. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but Wayne Easter, who is one of the few adults in the party, is calling out his boss and his colleagues, saying, "You know, wake up and smell the roses when it comes to China." And he's been around since the Cretean days. I mean, he, you know, he he's been around. He's got experience, and clearly, he's broken ranks with his party over the issue. Um, You know, and stating the obvious that that China poses a grave threat to this country. He can't figure out, like the rest of us, why a deal has been struck between Huawei and Canadian universities that will allow this telecom threat into our technology, you know, which is a threat to our national security. And so he broke his silence at the um, chair of the Commons Finance Committee. And on Tuesday, it issued a report before the budget, which should come out at some point soon, And it calls on the Trudeau government to pull out of this Asian infrastructure investment bank that Trudeau created in 2017. This is a bank that Canada is putting like a billion dollars into. And where is it going? I mean, Easter himself is questioning, why are we putting money into something that isn't really helping Asian countries, but it is giving Beijing more influence and able to do a power grab in this country? So he's saying, cancel that check, wake up and smell the roses. So I'm glad he gets it. The problem is, I just his boss does not seem to listen. I mean, as you heard yesterday, he can't even admit the obvious, which is that China's committing genocide to the Uyghur Muslims.
1: It's a word that is extremely- Extremely loaded and uh, is certainly something uh, that we should be looking at uh, in the case of the Uyghurs And I know the international community is looking very carefully at that and we are certainly among them And uh, we will not hesitate from being part of the determinations around uh, these sorts of things
0: Of course you're hesitating And it's a loaded word only when it's China, because back in June of 2019, this guy did not pause for a second when he, you know, completely accepted the accusation that Canada had committed genocide against Indigenous people. You know, he got this report from the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And I don't even know if he read it. He just accepted the accusation. Literally, the next day said, yep, that's it, we've committed genocide. And back then, he actually told Canadians, he said, quote... Canadians need to recognize the uncomfortable truths unearthed by the inquiry, and that Canadians are getting too wrapped up in debate over this powerful term. So, to be clear, Canada has to accept these uncomfortable truths that have not been proved. Yet when it comes to China, which is openly committing genocide to one million Uyghur Muslims, That's a loaded term?
2: Ultimately, um, yeah.
0: yeah. No wonder the growing ups of his party are starting to distance themselves. Stay with us here. This is Global News Radio. We've talked about the collateral damage of COVID, and some of that damage is to surgery delays. There have been thousands upon thousands of cancellations for life-saving procedures, including at SickKids, where... In November, they were reporting two thirds of kids on a waiting list are just waiting for these life saving procedures and have missed that surgery window and the opportunity to correct things like cleft palates or scoliosis. And one of those kids is four year old Emmett. He was supposed to undergo his first of four surgeries to even out his legs back in the summer of 2019. And he was born with one leg that is four centimeters shorter than the other. There's a very small window to get this corrected, or he could face a life with a constant limp as it should and would grow to 18 centimeters by his 16th birthday. Well, we have a little bit of good news because after 18 months of delays and cancellations, Emmett goes into surgery Tomorrow on Thursday, his mother Marla Clug joining me now, and uh, Marla, good to have you. I want to know: Is Emmett's mom and dad more nervous, or Emmett? How how are you feeling the night before?
2: Oh, absolutely! His parents are way more nervous. Um, yeah. You know, as as any parent's job, we sort of take on the anxiety and the stress, and we're very mindful about how we present the hospital and what he's going to start and and what his recovery is going to look like we we make sure that it's positive for him we make sure it's realistic but uh, appropriate for a four year old yeah Uh, so uh yeah we're we're obviously taking the brunt of it
0: And, and it's, it's not sick kids' fault because they have tried and tried like every other hospital, but they have become kind of victim to COVID with, uh, you know, the cancellation of all these elective surgeries. But especially when we're talking about kids, because there are issues that have to be, um, you know, not just discovered, but they have to be fixed within a certain period of a child's life or it becomes a lifelong uh, challenge for them. Is Emmett within the window of, um, you know, being able to correct this properly or is he outside the window? What are some of the, the you know, um, issues that have been caused by the delay?
2: Um, so absolutely, we're, we feel very fortunate that Emmet is still within his appropriate developmental window because his is a length discrepancy. Um, the windows for gross motor is actually quite long Mm -hmm. and he is still fitting within those windows. Maybe his recovery will take a little bit longer just because his bones are a little harder than were, you know, 18 months ago. But, Mm -hmm. um, but after every surgery, Emmett's going to have to learn to re-walk with a new longer leg in surgery with a new hip. And He will be able to do that. And certainly the concern, Alex, as you mentioned, is other kids, you know, kids who have uh, developing their first language, kids who have issues in their auditory system. And those windows are very narrow and and they are missing it.
0: Yeah. And that's probably your uh, your hospital calling for pre-surgery stuff right now. I apologize. Uh, No need. Hey, it's COVID times. Anything goes. But um, you know it's it's interesting because you guys have you've really had to fight, um, and and the doctors have really tried to fight with you to get Emmett into this um, surgery spot, and it wasn't just a given. I mean, you waited and waited and waited, and there was a chance pretty much up until I guess any time that it could be canceled yet again or delayed.
2: Absolutely, I mean the the hospital has always been on our side. They've always been working with us and been upfront with us from. Day one from before COVID was, was around, um, we knew that wait times were going to be long. The hospital mm. had always been underfunded. They always had long wait times and the pandemic just blew it out of proportion, exacerbated yeah. an already huge problem. So he was already on the wait list for six months before the pandemic even started. Yeah, So the issue just became bigger and bigger and and they were doing their best. Thankfully, now SickKids is back up to 100% of their surgical capacity um, from where they were pre-COVID so they can start to chip away at this wait list. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, I don't think anything has been done to add more funds and more people to actually get those wait times down.
0: And he has to have four surgeries, so tomorrow is just the start of his journey. How concerned are you that his next procedures could also be delayed? And if they were, what would that mean?
2: Absolutely, the concern is still there. Um, He he has a long road ahead of him. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as we know, it is four surgeries. Uh, I guess it, it could be more. Um, we kind of need to take things one step at a time. And certainly the delays that we had with this first surgery, it has always been a concern of ours as what does this mean for the future? What does this mean for this long road ahead? Um, And, and like you said, even once we got a date and there was a sense of relief, well, nothing is certain in pandemic times. Mm -hmm. So we were, cautiously optimistic that things were going through with every pre-op appointment that we went to with every follow-up we had, we, we got a little bit more confident, a little bit more confident, you know, now the surgery is tomorrow. Frankly, even last night, my husband said, so it's pretty remote that it's going to get canceled. Right. (laughs) And, and we have all learned to live with uncertainty um, now and, and, I guess, surgery is included in that.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And what does his recovery look like? I mean, are they going to be keeping him in hospital or has COVID changed that? And will he be kind of pushed out? And then uh, the recovery part uh, falls to you and dad. I mean, what does that recovery look like? Because getting anything, of course, done with therapies and, um, you know, rehabilitation, that also has been backlogged and delayed because of COVID.
2: Absolutely, it has. Um- very fortunate that I. I don't think the recovery has really changed all that much um, because of COVID, and will be in hospital for about three days. He'll be in uh, something called a spica cast, which mm-hmm. will from his waist uh, down through his hip down to his leg, yeah. all the way down. Um, so he'll be in hospital just having the cast set and recovering, and then he'll be at home. He'll be in the cast for about six weeks. And all the physiotherapy uh, sick kid staff teaches us as parents to do it, and and we do it at home. And I think that is quite typical, and thankfully doesn't need to change, or our plan doesn't need to change because of COVID.
0: Yeah, and are both
2: you and dad allowed to go in with him tomorrow, or is it just one parent? It, it's just one parent. Um, wow. Once he is admitted into hospital, um, at that point two caregivers are allowed to be with a child, but one at any given time, and we have to switch off outside of the hospital.
0: Boy, doesn't that add a stress all on its own to uh, parents, because the last thing you want, when I, and I've been in with sick kids, uh, you know, it's it, putting a child, you know, under with anesthetic is a serious thing in itself, let alone the surgery. So that that adds just an extra level of, you know, kind of a punch to the gut.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we have such an amazing support system here. We're, we're both from Toronto families are here and Mm. have um, parents and friends and siblings who want to help, but obviously given the restrictions, there's only so much that they can do.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you have been vocal about this. You spoke out about uh, Emmett's, um, you know, challenges and I'm so thankful. I was so relieved to get your note to say that he is scheduled for surgery. So keeping my fingers crossed and, uh, We'll hope for a smooth sailing and, um, you know, a speedy recovery for not just Emmett, but you guys as well, because I know that this has got to be just so, so trying.
2: Thank you, Alex. Thank you for keeping us, you know, in your thoughts and, and having me back on your show. There certainly hasn't been any shortage of news yeah. <laughs> and breaking news. And I appreciate that our story and, and what's going on with our family has been able to sort of Break the news barriers and and just keep us a little bit in the news story, so we're not forgotten about. I really thank uh, you from one mother to a mo- to another.
0: <laughs> no thanks needed. It'll just be uh, great to get some good news um you know following the surgery. So that's when we'll talk in the coming weeks. Hopefully, when he's on the mend and um, wishing you the best of uh, luck. So luck to you and Emmett for safe um, safety tomorrow and a great recovery. Thanks so much, Marla. Thank you. That is Marla Klug, and we'll uh, continue updating you on Emmett and how he is making out. But, you know, their story is one of hundreds being told um, across uh, this province because of, you know, the COVID. We were delayed before COVID, and COVID has just exacerbated everything. So here's to crossing our fingers that Emmett and the rest of the kids finally get their surgeries.
1: We will not weaken any environmental protections for the Greenbelt, and as has been the case, Since the Green Belt was created in 2005, critical infrastructure like highways, transit and wastewater projects may be permitted in the Green Belt subject to strict environmental conditions. To emphasize, there will be no development in the Green Belt.
0: Well, that is Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark who announced today that the Ford government is going to be moving ahead to expand the 800,000 hectare green belt of this protected land that is around the greater Golden Horseshoe. And they're promising that none of this land will be developed, and yet they're moving ahead with this very contentious $6 billion highway that will be called the 413. This is a GTA West Highway uh, corridor, and it will cut through farmland through Vaughan, Caledon, Orangeville, and Milton – And Clark stated that they're not changing any of the policies that the previous Liberal government put in, but then they point out that under those rules, infrastructure like sewage, pipelines, and, oh yeah, highways can still be built. Then the question becomes, does it mean it should be? The province's former Liberal government studied Highway 14 and then shelved it in 2018. Ford revived that superhighway, which would offer drivers a 50-kilometer route, But when you look at the numbers, it's only going to shave off about 30 to 45 seconds of the driver's time behind the wheel. And so it may be within the rules, but does it make sense given the overall benefit that doesn't seem to add up to much? Let us ask someone who is in the know because he is a former mayor of Toronto and former member of the Greenbelt Council who actually looked into this. David Crombie joins me. Great to have you finally on the show.
1: Thanks, Alex. Nice to be with you.
0: So you, in fact, and a number of others who are sitting on this Greenbelt Council, left this particular panel. Can I ask you why? What was the reasoning that y- you couldn't, you know, uh, come to agreements on this particular issue?
1: Well, the issue actually that was, although that was a part of it, the main issue for us was, and still is, uh, the uh, the future of the conservation authorities, which, of course, have historically for 75 years been the stewards of the area now known as the Greenbelt, and in, indeed, throughout the province. So it was okay, and so, yeah, go ahead. It, it, sorry, it was the government's uh, desire through a certain bill just before Christmas uh, to, uh, it was a money bill, but they put in uh, a section, Section 6, which actually, absolutely um, really diminishes the ability of the Conservation Authority to do its historic work as the steward of the natural uh, heritage that we have in that area.
0: Okay, and so here they are saying that they're going to expand the 800,000 hectare Greenbelt. And so more lands on the surface, it sounds like they're looking to protect more lands, but there just seems to be this fine print underneath it. Am I reading this wrong?
1: No, I don't think you are reading it wrong, but let me, let me be clear, if I could. Uh, we welcome uh, many of the people like myself who have been at, at this, uh, this Greenbelt and beyond uh, for many, many years. We welcome the opportunity that the minister has said he's interested in, uh, in expanding the Greenbelt. And indeed, there, mm-hmm. are, there are areas of, a, of a, a possible opportunity for us to move forward on. Uh, the minister himself talked about bringing the Paris uh, 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 Galt uh into the mm-hmm. Greenbelt. Talked about uh, um, doing more work with respect to bring in the urban river valleys. Now, all, those are really good things to do. What is not a good thing to do, in my judgment, and I think many others, is the building of the highway. Uh, the, the building of the highway not only was rejected by the previous government, but it was rejected on the basis by the previous government of an independent report. And that independent report said it was not worth it. And indeed, at $6 billion, you can put a lot of benefit to the Ontario public in a lot of areas for $6 billion. Mm-hmm.
0: Geez, for six billion dollars, yeah, you could have an oh, yeah. express link from Toronto to Hamilton. You could have an express link uh, from Toronto to, to the Waterloo Kitchener corridor, or at least you could have a good start on, on projects that we really need. Because when I look at this highway and I look at the area that it goes through, it does go through some very pristine farm area. Uh, that a lot of land that's going to have to be expropriated, Um, a lot of farmers who aren't very happy about that and have no choice. But when you look and weigh the cost benefit, there's not a lot of benefit. It just seems to kind of sprawl out highway development, but it doesn't get to the crux of our issues when it comes to traffic issues.
1: You've got it, Alex. That's exactly right. So so first of all, the money is better spent elsewhere. Secondly, uh, it is really important to understand that it has a really bad effect uh, on environmental areas and and watersheds river valleys across the humber across across uh, uh, the credit i mean there are there's a, a major environmental impact that was uh, that was written about uh, uh, by the conservation authority the toronto conservation authority and um they they opposed it as well and they're still trying to oppose it but they're being they're being really i think uh held back by the by the government so it is, it, is, it is environmentally bad. It is financially over the top in terms of the amount of money that to be spent. Uh, and if, if, if I can say so, um, it, 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 it doesn't have any rewards for the public of any significance, except it does have rewards for those who have assembled the land along its route.
0: Right. And I'm not anti-development, but I am very much pro-development of things that we actually need. And so I'm wondering, you know, what the risk to Ford's political capital is here, if it's really worth it in the end. Because, like we have both said, there is just so much more we could put this money towards in shovel-ready projects that are actually much more beneficial to the greater Toronto-Hamilton area.
1: Yeah. And I think that if we keep on, those people who see that it's a bad move, a bad trip to make, um, I think if we keep working at it, we'll, we'll get their attention. There are people in the in the Conservative Government Caucus who who understand that it's money going for not very good benefit, where, where on the other hand, it could go through their own writings um, and have some benefit. So I think if we keep working at it, the system may work on our behalf. And at the same Do you- time... Sorry? Mm-hmm. Go at ahead. At time... I, I, I want the minister and the government to proceed with this notion of expanding the green belt because there's great benefit can be had from that as well. Great political benefit as well as great environmental benefit.
0: So they're doing this 60 day study. Do you get the sense that this is um, a cooling off period, hoping that they can make this matter go away? Or do you get the sense that Highway 13 is a legacy project that, that Ford wants and will make happen either which way?
1: Well, certainly. Um, They've decided to move forward a little earlier on in the face of, uh, as I say, an independent report and everybody understanding that it's not worth the candle. They proceeded with it. So it seems that it's a favorite of theirs. On the other hand, they they also live in a vote economy. And if the public is against it, they will have to find themselves before the next election against it as well.
0: Right. I mean, the fact that people like yourselves walked away. I mean, it did get headlines. Sadly, a lot of it is crowded out by COVID, and so these issues are kind of slipping under the radar and not getting the attention that they should be getting. Because I think, if COVID weren't a thing, there would be you know heads rolling right now over this particular issue.
1: Well, I, I agree with that, and they're going to find what they're already finding. There's a statement out today, of a, a a press release, and a report out today that was signed by 90 organizations in the area those are, and that was headed up by uh, uh, environmental defense uh, by the blue the the, the green belt uh, alliance mm-hmm. uh, by conservation ontario and, and about 85 other bodies opposed to the airport or opposed to the uh, highway so mm-hmm. i think they're going to find that they're, they'll begin to pay attention
0: well, we'll stay tuned and see what the next uh, few weeks um, bring us. But certainly, something to keep an eye on. And I appreciate so much your um, insight into this because I know you've been involved in this and you know where, you know, the eyes are dotted, t's are crossed, and where they are not. So I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Not at all. I enjoyed speaking with you, Alex. And as a Hamiltonian, let me just say, Oski, wee wee,
0: Oski, wawa. Thank you, sir. That is uh, David Crosby, <laughs> joining us here and. Uh... If I could get him to come back to politics, I would. I don't have that power, however. Nonetheless, we'll have him back on. Here on Point, I'm Alex Pearson, and this is Global News Radio.
3: It has kidnapped two Canadians and held them hostage without cause or due process for two years. The time has come for Canada to call on the International Olympic Committee to relocate the 2022 Winter Olympics out of China. Canada must take a stand and show leadership. But we do not need to do this alone. We should work with our closest allies and coordinate an effort, and in doing so, remind our allies of the important role Canada has played and must continue to play in taking an early stand for human rights and dignity.
0: Well, that is a conservative leader, Arrow O'Toole, calling on the prime minister to push the 2022 Beijing Games out of China. He made that comment on uh, Tuesday and made clear we shouldn't be sending athletes into a country that's committing a genocide against its own people. And those people are the one million Uyghur Muslims. This, of course, is supported by the NDP. The Green Party. But if you ask Justin Trudeau, he avoids this issue like it is the plague. He literally cannot bring himself to admit that a genocide is going on, despite several other countries like the United States that have stated the obvious. And when it comes to China, it is very hard to understand his government's stance of appeasement for a dictatorship that is anything but basic. It is a direct threat to this country. The two Michaels have been tortured now for over 800 days. In fact, members of his own party are starting to call him out, telling him to wake up and smell the roses. Michael Chong joining me now, MP for Wellington, Halton Hills, also the foreign affairs critic. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. You know, this is an issue that keeps coming up over and over and over again. And when you look at the polling on China and our relationship with this country, overwhelmingly now for a couple of years, Canadians have said it is time to stop, um, you know, this partnership with China and start taking a stand. And yet the government in power today seems to be going the opposite direction. And, And frankly, none of it makes sense to me or anyone else, even in their own party.
3: Well, I think you're right. I think the government is increasingly out of touch with Canadians. Canadians overwhelmingly want the government to reset relations with China. They want the government, their government, to take a stronger stand on China. It's something that we've been calling for for some time. We think the government needs to come forward with a brand new framework on China that takes a very different approach that stands up for this country's interests and for its values.
0: Why is it so hard for the prime minister to call what other countries have, have called what China is doing to the Uyghur Muslims, which is genocide? He had no problem saying it um, when the report came out on missing, um, you know, women in the indigenous uh, uh, report. He, he cannot say it and yet condemned Canada with this label without even questioning it.
3: It's a good question. It's puzzling. Uh, it's, I think, a bit of naivete about the threat that China is posing to our, our country. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of people in the Liberal Party have close ties to business interests in China. And I think those are the reasons that seem to me why they're so hesitant to take a position. And it flies in the face of Canada's proud tradition of standing strongly for human rights and dignity for people around the world. You know, it was only some 75 years ago that Canadians liberated Europe from the tyranny of Nazism. It was 35 years ago that Canada stood stood up and said no to apartheid during the government of Prime Minister Brian Mulroney in the 1980s. Uh, the government is not acting in the best tradition of this country by refusing to stand up clearly and state that there's a genocide going on and that the world community needs to act to stop it.
0: Wayne Easter, who is obviously one of the um, older uh, people of the party, more mature in the party, so maybe he doesn't care what the um, consequences are, but he has broken ranks with the party, uh, pushing back a little, saying, look, it's time to wake up. This is a country that is a threat. And, and he said that. Um, You know, in his role on the Finance Committee, but basically he's telling this government stop putting money into this Beijing-backed infrastructure bank. Um, But again, he doesn't understand the positioning of his own government. Are we going to start seeing more of that?
3: I think so. Um, You know, he's a former Solicitor General of this country, and he understands this issue numerous other liberal mps have stood up and said that the government needs to recognize that there's a genocide going on that china is no longer the china it once was Um, a multi-party committee made up of mps from all parties uh, recently concluded that a genocide was taking place we now have two u.s administrations that have concluded a genocide is taking place including the biden administration numerous reports by investigative journalists the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and numerous other organizations that have come to that conclusion, including former just liberal justice minister Erwin Kotler, who yeah. has come to that conclusion. So I think increasingly the world community uh, is coming to the conclusion that there is a genocide going on and that we have to do something about it.
0: Is it of your mind that this Prime Minister is taking the approach of appeasement because he thinks that will work uh, to get the two Michaels back, or is he, or, or is it a position of fear that he's just scared to take a stand, or does he actually admire what they are?
3: Well, I don't know, but I'll say that there's a good degree of incompetence here. That's what I do know. You know, this is a government that said in July of 2019, that in May of 2019, that it was going to make a decision on Huawei. Uh, on its build-out of Canada's five g network um, by the election, then they delayed that um, and said it would be happening after the election. Now here we are a year and a half later, and still no decision. You know, we had a government that started off by saying it wanted to do uh, to negotiate a free trade deal with China. Uh, which completely fell apart. We had a government that, you know, said it was going to come forward with a new framework on China last year until they abandoned that approach last September. So it's just a series of contradictions and, and incoherence on this file. And, you know, I think, I, I think frankly, just, there's just a lot of plain incompetence on this file.
0: And so a lot of people are going to look at at your leader, um, Aaron O'Toole, um, for for his answers. And he's called openly. He's been very strong on China since the beginning. And so he has openly condemned this country. He has openly called this genocide. He has openly called. Uh, for a change in relationship. I mean, China is our our second largest trading partner. But when you actually look at the dollars and cents of it, it's 4%, $17 billion a year. Would Aaron O'Toole be willing to sever those ties, um, you know, if he were to become leader? Uh, is that something that he would do? I mean, what would he do differently that this government is not doing?
3: Well, we would come forward with a new framework on China that encompasses the entire bilateral relationship. So it encompasses not just diplomatic relations, it encompasses trade, it encompasses uh, the use of sanctions. Uh, It also encompasses working more closely with our allies to present a united front against some of China's threats. And so uh, in that context, everything's on the table in order to defend Canadians, Canadian companies, and Canadian interests. For example, We believe that Canada should be working closely with our democratic allies. Recently, uh, the U.S. President has reached out to the Indian Prime Minister, the Australian Prime Minister, and the Japanese Prime Minister to talk about creating a new alliance in the East. Um, It's called the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. Many people are Uh, believe that it could evolve into the eastern version of nato Uh, we believe that canada should be at that table as the fifth partner country but this government's not indicated any interest in participating in this new alliance and that's unlike the best of our tradition you know canada was a founding partner of nato some 75 years ago we were there when nato was created and we've been a part of the western alliance for many many decades You know that's just one area where we think Canada um, can do can participate, where a conservative government would do a much better job in defending, uh, working with our allies to defend our collective interests.
0: And and would your party open uh, be open to using the Magnitsky sanctions? I mean, is is China in a in a particular position where you feel it would be justified?
3: Absolutely. Uh, In fact, it was conservatives both in the House. In the the House of Commons and in the Senate, uh, my colleague, uh, Conservative MP James Bazan and my former colleague, uh, Senator Anderchuk that introduced the bill that created the Magnitsky Law that allows the government of Canada to put sanctions on individuals who are guilty of committing gross human rights violations, guilty of violating international law. And so we believe that that's an important tool in the toolkit that Canada can use in conjunction with our allies to sanction those officials who are responsible for things like the genocide taking place in Western China, for the threats against the 300,000 Canadians living in Hong Kong, for the violation of international law and the international treaties that China has been uh, abrogating in recent years. So that is all part of what we think needs to be a reset with China, a new framework.
0: And what is your greatest concern at this point? I mean, obviously, we've got a relationship now between Huawei and Canadian universities. There's the two Michaels. I mean, there are so many geopolitical um, issues with China, which is what do you think is the the biggest and the most important that needs to be addressed uh, the soonest?
3: Well, the most immediate is to stop the Chinese foreign influence operations here on Canadian soil that are intimidating Canadians, particularly Canadians in the Chinese community. Uh, These operations uh, should be stopped immediately. We've seen things take place on the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. We've seen events take place uh, at McMaster University's Mm -hmm. campus where... Uh, the Chinese government is in threatening and intimidating students on these campus through their proxies. And that has got to stop um, we adopted a motion in the House of Commons in November that called on the government to come forward with a robust plan. Uh, they've yet to do so. Part of that plan should also, as you mentioned, include a decision on Huawei. We believe that Huawei should be banned from the core of the build-out of Canada's telecommunications network. We also believe that the government should not partner with Huawei uh, in university partnerships. Uh, universities yeah. right now are flying blind. Uh, the government. Yeah. The federal government is the only government in this country, the only entity that actually has the national security capabilities, the security and intelligence gathering to make an informed decision about the threat that Huawei is presenting. And it's clear. The head of CSIS has said that China is trying to use the build-out of 5G to infiltrate our national security and to steal intellectual property. And so the government, the, the liberal government needs to put an end to that, needs to clearly indicate to universities that these partnerships are not on and should withdraw any funding in partnership with Huawei.
0: Well, if they can't do that, then it's a far cry that they're going to say no to uh, Huawei in um, you know, in the future. It is concerning. Mr. Chong, I appreciate your time on this. We'll have you on again.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: That is uh, Michael Chong, MP for Wellington Halton Hills, also the foreign affairs critic. And uh, look, you need only look at the polling on this issue to see where Canadians stand. And maybe the Trudeau government should look at that polling because it is overwhelming. Canadians want this relationship changed. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on Point, point. this is Global News Radio. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.